Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Ari Wallach on the show. Ari is a futurist and social system strategist. He's the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, an initiative focused on bringing long-term thinking and coordinated behavior to the individual, organizational, and societal realms in order to ensure humanity flourishes on an ecologically thriving planet Earth for centuries to come. Ari is the author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs by Harper One. Ari's TED Talk on Long Path has been viewed over 2.5 million times and translated into 19 languages. Wow. Welcome, Ari. Wow. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry, that, that intro I know is a little bit of a, of, as a, as a mouthful. It's kind of like a test. It's yeah, like, it's like a tongue twister there. Tongue twister. We have a bunch of like really big words in this <laughs> complex that we don't make it easy. So you, you, we passed the test. So now the rest of the, our conversation will be very easy after Perfect. that. Well, I'm going to start with this that I didn't tell you before because I yes. sort of wanted to surprise you. So I'm sitting in services for Yom Kippur. Yep. And the rabbi's talking and she's giving her sermon. And all of a sudden she starts quoting you. <laughs> and I got so excited and I turned to my mom and I'm like, I'm interviewing him in a couple of weeks for my podcast, his book, Long Path. So it was a very exciting That's moment great. for me to have my rabbi. And I can send you the sermon after if you're curious. Very. Is quoting you who I'm interviewing. It was just like this awesome moment where I was great. like, so let's start talking about the long path and yep. what that means and why it matters and why it's so important now. Yeah, I mean, so th this book uh, came out recently and, you know, somebody were like, well, how long did it take to write the book? Because usually a book takes, you know, a couple of years. But I've actually been writing this book in one way or another in my head for about 20 years, thinking about different ways to kind of navigate life. So I run an organization called Long Path Labs. People kind of assume Long Path is, is a noun, but really it's it's like a verb in the sense that it's an applied mindset. And so why? So as a kind of as a as a both historian anthropologist, I kind of come at futuring in a in a way that's slightly different than most folks. Most people think of a futurist as someone who just is standing in today and kind of projecting out into the future and saying, these are the things that are going to happen. That that's not the kind of futurist I am. I, I'm not a predictive in many, in any way, shape, or form. Now that being said, in the book, we talk about mega trends and things that are kind of unfurling across the planet and civilization right now. That being said, Long Path is really a way of navigating this moment. And I, and I talk about in the book that we're in this intertidal moment. And anyone who is alive right now knows what we're going through is something very kind of chaotic and fluxy. So I put a name to that because really what an intertidal is when we're kind of step back looking at the, the oceanic you know, way of thinking about it. Intertidal is that part of land that's sometimes underwater and sometimes above water based on the tides kind of coming in and out. That's very much where we are as a society. Obviously, there's a bias towards kind of uh, the West, if you will, but it's actually kind of planetary in a sense. And so the reason I call it intertidal is we're in between what was and what will be. And when we think about what has been, we think about the past several hundred years, probably going back really the way I talk about it in the book is the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, which was based on a kind of architecture 
uh, around the scientific method that if you can measure it, it's real. If you can't measure it, it's not real. Mm -hmm. And so that actually got us very far. It gave us amazing science. It gave us the ability for you and I to talk over this thing called the internet right now. The issue is we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So we said no more emotions, nothing. If we can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And it's all going to be about kind of kind of techno solutionism as a way that we move humanity forward. But we all know in our lives that we're surrounded by technology. We're surrounded by all the amazing things that the Enlightenment gave us. But the rates of uh, lack of trust in almost every institution are at all time lows. Levels of anxiety, depression, mental health issues are, are staggering. And so we're really kind of facing this moment where as a kind of a global civilization, we're trying to figure out what is the way forward because what, what got us here isn't gonna necessarily get us there. And so Long Path is a mindset to help us kind of navigate this intertidal and then figure out where the there there is we wanna get to is. So nowhere in the book, just so folks know, do I say, well, this is what the promised land looks like. This is what we should all be heading towards. Actually very specifically in the first few pages say, I'm not gonna tell you what we should be heading towards. I'm gonna give you a way of thinking and seeing and a, and, and a mindset to help you navigate this moment so that you can kind of figure that out for yourself and figure out in, in a community, whatever that community means for you. It could be your family, it could be your organization, it could be obviously you know the, your country and, and beyond that. And so Long Path again is a way of kind of seeing where we are in this moment, figuring out how we wanna go through this collectively, ethically, morally together, and then also start to kind of paint a picture of what we want that other side to look like, which I talk about towards the end of the book. So that's that that's long path, not so much in a nutshell, but kind of gives you this overview. And you, you know, you've read it. Folks who are reading it are saying, "Wow, from from the get go, I'm starting to see things very differently. I'm no longer just kind of seeing things in this kind of static present moment. I'm seeing things through a much wider lens. That wider lens is time. So it's not just about the far futures; it's also about the far past." And Long Path helps situate the reader and the person who's applying this mindset in a way that's different than how we tend to go about our day to day. And things now are definitely different than they've yeah. ever been. That 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 isn't in our imagination, or well, we didn't live hundreds of thousands of years ago, or you know, things things were not like they are now. We are at Correct. a tipping point. Yes, very much so. And, and the question is, which way do we want to go? And that's why the book is called Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs. Because what mm -hmm. I'm saying is we're not at the end. We're actually very much the beginning. If we think about most species, most mammalian species have at least a million year run on Earth based on the historical evolutionary biological record. So we're only a couple hundred thousand years into this. So we're really just in kind of chapter one, if you will, of the kind of homo sapien ride. And so people are like, oh, we're, you know, we're at this tipping point. The end is near. There could be, there, there's definitely an end coming. It's not an, I don't think it's an end of homo sapiens. I think it's an end of the way that we've been kind of operating because for the first time, and this is not the first intertidal, right? We had an intertidal. You could argue there was one moving from kind of the fall of Rome into the Middle Ages. But the real big intertidal that we, that we went through that we all can kind of look back is this movement from hunter-gatherer to agricultural, right? This agricultural mm -hmm. revolution. 10 to 12,000 years ago. Now that took place over hundreds, if not you know, a couple thousand years for that to happen on a planetary scale. I guarantee you they weren't sitting around saying, wow, we're in an intertidal. It was just kind of like, they were kind of moving through it. So now we're at this point where we can actually step back and say, wow, we're going, some, we're going through something. And so we can either kind of cling to the past because that's what we know and that's what feels safe. And as a species, that's what 
we're kind of, we want to do, right? That's our short-termistic bias. A lot of what I talk about in the book, or we can say, no, 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 let's step back. What is it that we actually want to do and become? And this is an argument happening right now. This is not like a philosophical, you're seeing groups of folks, let's say in Silicon Valley saying, no, no, what we want to do is we want to move beyond kind of a being a biological human, moving to transhumanism and upload into the cloud. There's other folks who are kind of neo-romantics and say, well, no, we want to go back and live in the woods. I'm not necessarily going to argue against any of these. What I'm saying is we're at a moment where you can actually have and need to have those conversations. One of the rationales behind writing a book is I'm basically calling the question and saying, we're now an inner title. I'm calling it. And if we want, we need to step back and figure out where is it that we actually want to go as a species on this planet? Now, some people will say, this planet is over. Let's go to Mars. And, you know, so again, there's all these conversations happening, but they're either happening in kind of small pockets or we kind of have horse race politics, right? Like who's going to win the midterms? Like, yes, the midterms are very important. Don't, don't get me wrong. All, all elections are important. But nowhere in that are we having real conversations about as a species at a, and thinking about kind of consciousness, the way you talk about it, the way mm -hmm. I talk about it, like, where do we want to go with this? How do we start having those conversations in a very real ethical way that isn't, quote unquote, like too out there? Because I could argue we've been having conversations like this since the 60s or even the 50s in certain right. pockets. Right. But now, how do we have them at the forefront? So it's, again, no longer just a dinner party it can happen there. But how do we have these in New York and Washington and LA, these kind of cultural, economic, and or political centers? Don't and forget Chicago. me in the middle. Well, I was going to go to Chicago because <laughs> well, it's interesting because if you think about kind of futures trading and kind of what Chicago's role has been in U.S. history, all the rail lines kind of coming to Chicago, it's, it's my contention, and I'm not just saying this because you're there, is that Chicago is going to come up again in a major way, partially because of climate change, right? Chicago is actually very well situated as a geographically over the next several decades, probably more than almost any major city in the US in terms of warming temperatures, the need for access to clean water and kind of shipping. So yeah, to your point, even the cities that we think of as the major cities of the world are gonna be going through their own intertidal aspects and ways of being. And Chicago, I think will actually be one that does relatively well in the coming decades. Well, if by global warming you mean it will be warmer here, I hope that's the case. It'll be warmer. It'll change. be warmer. Yeah. Every any uh, the closer to the equator you get, I mean, look, it's it's not just global warming. It's kind of global weirding and weathers and droughts right. and all sorts right. of things. And so we, you know, we I like that global weirding. Well, it's global weirding because you, it could be a drought, it could be floods, it could be you know. But in general, the planet is getting warmer, but it doesn't just mean things are getting hotter. It means all sorts of things that are kind of counterintuitive, like heavier snowfalls or heavier rains, like we saw in Pakistan or even the Northeast or even down South. So in this kind of global weirding moment, part and parcel of this intertidal moment, certain cities are going to do quote unquote better just because where they're situated. So are you arguing that in order to survive this, we have to have a long path. I, I try not to, I say in order to navigate it, because the, the, one of the things I, I went, you know, wrote the book and then I went through it and I said, where in this book am I using like negative or fear-based framing and how do I kind of read for that and take it out? Mm -hmm. so, so I had surviving in a few places. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to replace that with navigating. Mm -hmm. Surviving all, what surviving does 
I'm not, you use, I use it all the time. I use it this morning with my kids, right? <laughs> what surviving does is it automatically trips. If, like if you want to survive your childhood type of Yeah, if you, want, right. if, you want to, if you want to survive the, you know, the rain today. No, because what it does is it automatically trips at the, you know, within the limbic system, within the amygdala, the hippocampus, it kind of becomes a kind of a cortisol adrenaline based way. And in that moment, we become very short-term thinking, right? And so the, the subline of, of the book is an antidote for short-termism. So what I'm saying is that in this intertidal, when we become kind of more fear-based in our approach, and the fear could be from politicians, but it could mm -hmm. just be from the kind of flux and chaos that we're all feeling, we're going to become laser-focused on what's right in front of us. And that's understandable. If Amy and Ari are walking in the Serengeti 15,000 years ago and a large animal jumps out, we're going to be very short-term thinking. We're not going to have a big kind of conversation about it. The issue is at the very moment in this intertidal, when we have to be thinking about the far futures and where is it we want to build towards, the exact opposite is happening. In this kind of moment of chaos and flux and fear, we become very short-term thinking. And so it's not about adopting a long path to necessarily survive this moment, it's to help kind of navigate through. Yes, one of the byproducts of successfully navigating intertidal is you get to survive. Mm -hmm. But again, as a dilettante linguist, I think often about kind of the frames and what those re what those reactions cause in, in people. So it's very much adopting a long path helps you both understand the moment we're in, your role and your responsibility in making decisions from, from small to big, and then having a kind of deeper vision of where you want to go, not just in your own life, but at a larger kind of civilizational scale. So you have a larger kind of context for making those decisions. All those things lead up to what are the kind of the pillars of the long path mindset, and they help you navigate this moment, not just more successfully for your career, but more successfully as a society and a civilization. So can we talk a little bit about those pillars and yeah. also how how we apply this or what this looks like in our everyday lives. So we sure. can, so I can at least start to shift the mindset of the people who are listening or watching this. Long path mindset rests on these three pillars. Um, some of them you can get very quickly and some of them take a little bit more thought. So the first one is obvious once you hear it, it's moving from the idea that there is one future to the idea there are multiple futures, right? Futures with an S. So I'm often asked to speak on these panels. They're like, hey, all right, all right, we want you to come speak on the future of the city as if there's one specific future possible, right? And mm -hmm. so what I talk about in the book is this idea that I get from Nils Gilman, this idea of the official future. And I, and I put that in quotes because more often than not, we don't realize when we think about tomorrow, the singular, the singular future, it's actually kind of that the entire kind of frame and the way of thinking about it is one that it doesn't just come, we're not born with it and saying, oh, the future is monorails and jetpacks. The official future is this kind of set of assumptions, kind of often unsaid, but in the general kind of media and society about what tomorrow is going to be. So the, the official future right now is kind of, again, this idea of like techno solutions, techno utopianism, like monorails, jetpacks, 5G, quantum. When we think about tomorrow, it's always about the kind of the hardware and the tech or what I call the Silicon Valley version of the future. Now, that is part of it. That is obviously part of our world. But the reason Long Path pushes us to have futures is because the idea is that we're actually going to examine multiple ways of being that don't necessarily center technology, right? So mm. we talk about restorative justice or 
increasing our kind of levels of awareness and consciousness about ourselves and humanity and humans and guy and all that that doesn't necessarily fit in the official future of like 5g quantum computing right so first and foremost recognize there isn't just one future there are multiple futures that are emerging right and which ones we decide to kind of lean into matters but first and foremost know that we are not locked into that singular future so that that's the first pillar the second pillar is what I call transgenerational empathy. And we're gonna, we're gonna unpack that one in a second. And the third one is what I call telos or ultimate aim and goal thinking, right? And, and the reason, and telos is about having that goal, not just for yourself or your own career, but really stepping back and saying, what is the ultimate purpose of whatever it is that I'm doing? Both, it could be in the project you're working on, it could be in your career, it could be how you're parenting, but really I'm asking the question, for humanity writ large, like to what end, right? That's the question. When you're talking about future versus futures, it, it sounds to me that there can be like a singular future, right? Like my future, the collective future, right? Like what does the future of all of us look like? Yeah. Where do those come together? How can we yep. bridge those pieces? Because if you're a, what did you, tech, technological- Te Techno-solutionist, right? Techno Techno-utopian. It's all, technology is the answer for everything, right? Right. We get Versus a lot of it right now. almost like a kind of a renaissance back to the 60s, which some people would argue were, were hearkening back to, right? Yep. Or even yep. before that, um, where there's this like revival of how can we be more conscious? How can we be more connected in yep. that way that moves away from the technological utopian yeah yeah 100 percent of being per perhaps yeah i mean so f future versus futures another way of thinking about it is you know um it's around kind of conscious evolution or the evolution of consciousness right so more i'll be in these conversations and we'll see like what people will say well where do you see us in 20 or 30 years from now and i'll say well wh which aspect and again the default is always going to be around technology and so what I often say is, you know, you think about it in Silicon Valley and around the world, hundreds of billions of dollars are put in to the evolution of software and hardware, right? The computers that we sit on, we're using Zoom right now, they just raised $100 million. Like, imagine if that much capital and attention mm -hmm. was put towards consciousness and consciousness evolution of as as at the individual level right think of think of it so we you know i i turned on the news this morning and i was watching the business channel and the channel was about all the major deals that are happening right now to grow the economy at the hardware level and i, I just stopped and i go you know god imagine if we had a channel like this but it was all the money and resources going towards raising consciousness at the oh human my level. God, I would be so in for that. Yeah. Well, so a lot of us would be in for that. Right. And so part of what I'm writing this book is like saying, like, well, let's step back and think about if we put as much kind of time and effort into moral evolution as we do technological evolution. Imagine, you know, I just got a, a message on my iPhone, like the next update is the next software update is ready, right? And they pushed it out to hundreds of millions of iPhone users. Like, what would it look like if we had updates around ethics and morals and consciousness and self-awareness and it had the same kind of breathless attention, right? Like everyone was talking about, oh, the new operating system for the iPhone came out, iOS 16, and it was everywhere. You, you couldn't everywhere, every headline talked about it for 24 hours. We have none of that when it comes to kind of psychological awareness at the individual or the collective layer. Mm -hmm. And when we do have it, it's kind of dismissed as either too kind of new agey or it's, it's, it's a nice to have, it's interesting, but it's not real business. It's not, 
It's not what we do as humans. And so futures thinking is meant to kind of open the cone up of what we think about how we evolve as a species, not just being about the technology, but about, let's say, being the spiritual technology or the psychological technologies or the other things that will kind of help advance us. Um, as, it's as, interesting, as, yeah. too, as you're talking and I'm thinking about like the goal of technology it seems like, and what you keep hearing is it's to connect, to connect, to connect, right? To connect you, to connect. Yeah. I mean, even Facebook, that was all about making yeah. connections. And yet as from a conscious perspective, we've gotten so far away from that, even with the technological advances. And it's like, how do we get back to that genuine human connection that I believe is the core of what we need to be, to evolve? A hundred percent. A good friend of mine, the, the philosopher and author, Doug Rushkoff, who I mentioned in the book, wrote a book called Team Human, right? And the, and the title tells you everything. Like, mm. what, what, what team are we on, right? And I'm, I'm arguing, and, sh and again, throughout the book, there are exercises at the end of every chapter that are meant to kind of drill down into these aspects of the mindset and help kind of embody them, right? So I talk, you know, there's an exercise where you write a letter to your future self, another one we kind of stand in front of a mirror. These are all kind of research-backed exercises to kind of bring us away from a purely kind of techno future that is all about the external evolution and more about the kind of the internal evolution. And so to your point, we're very much at that. And you, you can see this in kind of the increased usage and attention of psychedelics, right? People wanting to get back to something and connect, not through, let's say, a corporate server. Not that I'm like, I'm not, I don't mean to sound like an, a Luddite or anti-technologist, but how do we connect to other humans? How do we connect to ourselves? To ourselves, right? yeah. At the first third of the book, before I even get into kind of like futuring and transgender and, 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 and these bigger issues, I say, first and foremost, figure out who you are. Like, how did you get to this point? And so in the book, I talk about desired futures and I talk about examined desired futures. And so again, where does the kind of messaging come? You know, Ari, you should be this or you should be that. No one is born thinking they should be a doctor or a lawyer or a race car driver or gay or straight or anything. Like a lot of these things are kind of uh, culture for better or for worse, kind of forcing people into pathways. And I'm saying before you can start to think about what futures you want to live in as an individual or an organizational leader, you have to step back and see what is it that got you thinking that in the first place? Kind of examine that in a very kind of Socratic, Aristotelian way. And then from there, you can kind of start to open up and say, okay, my, my desired futures is to be a race car driver, let's say, but my examined desired future is something potentially that, but something very different. And again, the book is meant to help people kind of find that within them, because that's where futuring comes from. If you think of futuring as a verb, if you think of the future as a verb, mm -hmm. then that we create, um, it has to, to your point, start at the individual human layer before we can extrapolate and talk about these much bigger things. So I give these talks in Silicon Valley and I ask folks, well, where, you know, these futures that you're building, where did you get that from? Like, where did you get the idea that we want to, you know, connect in that way? And without going to those private conversations, it's always like, oh, I saw it on TV or I saw it in movies or it was books that I read. And so, again, it's about stepping back, examining those, those narratives and those frames that were kind of given by parents and society. And then, again, you can't solve it all in, in, in a book but at least being conscious of it and then moving forward to kind of future from there. And it's, that's why I talk about in the book, 
transgenerational empathy. Mm -hmm. So people say, oh, transgenerational empathy, I get it. It's about having empathy with the future. Yes, but that's actually the third step. The first step is empathy with your ancestors. And that could be your parents, if you know them, or if you don't know them, and recognizing everyone more often than not is doing the best they can in any given moment. And so whereas you may have issues with your parents or your culture or your society, recognize that future generations will have similar issues with you, even if you think you're doing a great job. Yeah, right? that so was really, when you said that in the book, I was like, oh, because I think of that often as what is the future going to say about what we're doing now? You know, I, look, I'm, I'm not a veg, I'm an aspiring vegetarian, but I guarantee you in 200 <laughs> years, they're going to look back and be like, how do they eat animals? Or how do they treat, or how do they walk past a person who is unhoused? Or all these things that we can kind of rationalize away because there are narratives that say, oh, someone who's sleeping on the street, well, that's their fault. Or, you know, that, that was a mm -hmm. choice that they made without necessarily looking at the systems or looking at the families that they were born into and those families and those families and those families. And in the not too distant future, whichever path we end up on, they'll look back and be like, how did they do that? In the same way that we look back at people who are slave owners and be like, how did they do that? Right. Or all the atrocities in the past. Now, well, so and you come from holocaust your descendant of holocaust survivors yeah and so you know it was my my father on my father's side at a very as a teenager he lost half of his family to the holocaust and he basically fled a ghetto broke out of a ghetto the jewish ghetto and be and fought with the jewish underground for several years and it took me a very long time uh to even go to germany right i kept getting asked to go give talks in germany i just said no i can't do it i can't do it and so Part of writing this book was also my reconciliation and saying, and again, this is not an, ex I'm not excusing any one of atrocities, but recognizing when you look back and you look back in Germany in the after world, before World War I, after World War I, 20s and 30s, you start to see how, um, I don't want to say easily, but it's a, it's a kind of a slippery slope that people can be led to doing really horrific things. And when your life is at stake or someone else's, whose life are you going to choose? Exactly. And so it, it becomes this really interesting dynamic. Again, I'm not equating what we're going through in this moment right now into what, what Germans did far from in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But you start to understand that we can rationalize very quickly where we are and what we're doing. And so the point of transgenerational empathy is for you to realize that the world that you're living in right now wasn't when you were just born into like a blank slate. A whole bunch of narratives and ways of thinking led to this moment. And again, it's about kind of becoming just aware of that so that you can step back. So then, and this is the important part of the book, is if we are going to become great ancestors, how do we have an emotional, empathetic connection to future generations? And, and, the, and so you're going to ask, well, why, why do we need that? Why Isn't it just important enough to just take the smart intellectual actions and recycle and compost and elect a certain leaders? Yes, we need to do that. But the reason I say transgenerational empathy and not transgenerational thinking or transgenerational, you know, uh, like a non-emotive way of connecting is because what all the research shows is that when we actually have an emotional connection, first and foremost to ourselves, that's why we talked about this earlier, right? You have to be able to reconnect and have empathy for yourself before you can have it for those who came before you and those who will come after you. So I talk about that in the book, but when you have an emotional connection to the future, either your future self, future Ari, future Amy, and by extension to future generations you don't even know, you all the research shows by Hal Hirschfield at UCLA and David Esteno and Jamil Zachary, all these folks, 
you're much more likely to take actions on their behalf if you feel an empathic connection to them. And so a big part of the book is building up your kind of empathy and connection at a very deep level with those future generations, really imagining what your great, great descendants will be kind of going through is going to help you take smarter course correction actions. And so uh, the question that you asked earlier is, well, what are some of those things, right? We can start doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm often asked when I'm in these keynotes with executives, I'll be flying off to give one later. They say, well, you know, what can I do about the future? I don't, I don't decide. I'm not the president of the United States or the prime minister of Canada. Like what, what can I do? I'm just a CEO or I'm just a quote unquote, a parent or a teacher or a police officer. The fact of the matter is there are those very big decisions that have to be made that we have to start making around, let's say, climate change and bioengineering and artificial intelligence. And there's a bunch of smart people working on that. So first and foremost, we have to become aware of those issues. That's why I talk about these. The mega trends are in the book. So be aware. Don't just say, oh, AI is going to go and do what artificial intelligence is going to do. You have to be aware. You have to kind of vote and be uh, an informed citizen. Yes. And at a deeper level, again, this goes back to Buck, what Buckminster Fuller talked about. We need to think of ourselves as trim tabs. And so this is what people kind of connect to a lot in the book. So Buckminster Fuller was asked by the U.S. Navy during World War II. He's kind of this futurist architect who passed away in the 70s, who was also a teacher of my mom. He was asked, he said, look, the ships are getting bigger and bigger. And we're finding it very difficult to create these massive rudders to turn these ships because the, the bigger the, the bigger the cargo ship gets, the rudder has to go six feet, 12 feet. And we don't, we don't have the hydraulic power to turn it. And he came up with this very ingenious idea called the trim tab, which is only like a four inch piece of like little piece of metal at the trailing edge of the rudder. And he found that if you were able to just turn the trim tab four inches on a six foot rudder, it would create a negative pressure gradient and actually swing the entire rudder around. So you no longer needed hydraulics, you just needed a small action that would have a great effect. And so he believed in this so much, the ability for individuals to kind of create futures at scale. On his tombstone, it says, call me Trim Tab. That's literally on his tombstone. <laughs> you know, it has his name and his birthdays. And so what I talk about in the book is the need to kind of think about what are the Trim Tab things we can do every day that is building futures that we want. So yeah, it'd be great if you run a huge artificial intelligence lab and you make the conscious decision, well, really AI should be focused on helping humans flourish. Yes, but there are very few of those people who are running those huge artificial intelligence labs or bioengineering or doing work on climate change in that way. So what we can do is start thinking about, to your earliest point, how do we start connecting more at the human level, both with ourselves and those around us so that we can navigate this moment with more love, respect, and empathy, and compassion, and awareness, because not just because it feels good today for Ari or for Amy, uh, but because at scale, when hundreds of millions of people or billions of people are doing that, it actually changes the entire soil from which society and the future will manifest from. So I say so this it to sounds people. to me like you're talking about raising consciousness. It's raising consciousness. And raising vibration. Which you might not want to say, but I'll say on this podcast. I was only hesitating, not because of the vib of vibration, but the raising, because it may be also lowering vibration. I mean, it's recognizing vibrations as an as a field of mm -hmm. inquiry and action and being conscious to it, right? So that mm -hmm. is, and, and you can 
if we if we look at our kind of our mystics across all religions, this is a terminology they use. It may not all be vibration and string theory and you know the way we talk about it as we bring in kind of quantum mechanics into the mystical arts. But this is really what they're talking about, mm -hmm. right? And, and changing it at that level. And, you know, it's it's a shame because, not a shame, but this is what I, when earlier when I say you throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? 400 years ago, we kind of got rid of God. We got rid of religion because we couldn't measure it. And more importantly, especially in the West and in Europe, religion wasn't the way we think about it now. It was kind of like it can, where it can be new agey. We can go to burn it. Religion was controlled by the church. It was a bureaucracy. It was this right. extrajudicial state government that controlled whether you went to heaven or hell, indulgences. It was very different than we think about it now as your local church or synagogue. It was all encompassing. And so when we had the Copernican revolution and we said, no, not everything revolves around the earth. Uh, it revolves around the sun and we're not the center of everything. That was amazing because it kind of took that power of ultimate truth away from the the bureaucratic church, not a theological argument, but a, almost like a, a political nation state argument. In doing so, we did that and that led to, towards more human freedom and more kind of uh, enlightened, rational way of thinking. But in the process of doing that, we eradicated that entire kind of mystical, what we might call vibrationary realm, right? Mm -hmm. And not arguing whether or not any one is better than the other, we just got rid of the whole thing. Right. And we just said, it's all about weights and measures and scales. If you can measure it, great. If you can't measure it, like emotions or God or religious, we don't need it. It's actually terrible. And so what we're seeing in this intertitle that we're in is people are saying, oh, wait a second. We can actually have both and actually find a way of having a synthesis between our technology, our outward technology. Remember, Frederick Nietzsche, the, the old German philosopher said, technology I mean, this was gendered, but he said, technology is man's attempt to become more godlike, right? To cheat mm. death, to kind of extend ourselves beyond our mortal ways of being. Um, I somewhat argue in the book that technology helps us do that, but there are other ways in terms of raising consciousness in our moment-to-moment -moment actions that allow us to become more godlike. It doesn't just mean we can destroy rivers and dams and the plant. That that's one thing that that God does, whatever God means to you know individuals. Another thing is also becoming more love-based and more compassionate and more empathetic and raising consciousness at the individual layer in a way that starts to manifest horizontally at a planetary level. And from that, even the way we think about policies, the way we think about laws, the way we think about how we organize as a society, that actually starts to change, right? So there's a whole set of solutions out there and ways of being that are kind of hidden from us right now, right? Because we're very much stuck in this kind of enlightenment way of thinking. And so as we start to kind of think and rethink our base assumptions about how we order ourselves as a society, all of a sudden different solutions and ways of being start to reveal themselves. That's kind of what we're at. That's how we start. In the same way that the scientists started to reveal hidden truths 400 years ago, now those who are operating in the realms of consciousness and however we want to call that, uh, however we want to define that field, those new things are starting to kind of reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to navigate successfully, this intertidal long path is a way of kind of seeing that, but not necessarily revealing any specific truth, except the one that says how we act in our day-to-day -day actually is what creates the future, more than these kind of big dystopian sci-fi ways of thinking about tomorrow. And then from that, new ideas and ways of being 
could be how we order business, markets, medicine, all those things are right for change because they're all kind of stuck in the past in a very specific way of thinking. And so when we think about this paradigm shift that we're going through, it is both technological, those are the things I point to, but it's also psychological. And stepping back and seeing that, being able to have those conversations in a very real way is what allows us to start building those futures and those ultimate aims, those telos that we want much faster and in a much better way. So what is the third pillar then? The third pillar is telos, which means ultimate aim and goal. So I, so all the research, again, I know it's you know Western psychological research, all the research shows what allows people to kind of achieve goals is to have a vision of what success looks like. So when we think about, let's say, Steph Curry visualizing success on the basketball court, he's not visualizing himself missing free throws, right? Or Tiger Woods didn't visualize himself, didn't visualize missing the putt. As a society, we are not visualizing, I think, properly worlds that we want to see. It's all very short-termistic and very mm. reactionary. And so what I'm saying is the telos, this ultimate aim and goal is one that you both have to have make explicit and kind of visualize in your mind's eye, because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And we hear that all the time at the individual kind of coaching level, right? Like coaches will say that all the time. My son is playing soccer. And they're like, if you don't visualize yourself shooting and making that goal on the soccer field, it's not going to happen. Telos, as, as written in the book around the mindset, is I'm saying the same thing both for individuals but as a society, as a global civilization, if we don't have an ultimate aim or purpose of what that is, and I, and I offer one up, I don't get detailed because I don't want to do that. But what I say is one of human flourishing, where we are, and you said that in the intro bio, right? A flourishing homo sapiens on an ecologically thriving planet Earth. What does that look like? And, what is, and flourishing doesn't mean a Ferrari in every driveway. It means psychological safety. It means a, a connection to things that go beyond the way we've even thought about what connection means, right? And so, and I'm saying that that could be one telos. I'm putting that up there. But what I'm really trying to do is push us as individuals and a society to have the conversations about like, to what end, right? Because what we do is we, we, we operate in what I call kind of a lifespan bias. Like I think about like from my birth to my death, what do I, what do I want to get done? It's like a hundred yard race. Mm -hmm. And that's the entire self-help section of every bookstore is very much centered on you or me, right? Whereas I'm again, making an argument and showing through examples in the book that we need to flip that from kind of a me to a we, but not just in this temporal moment, but over the next several hundred, if not several thousand years, if we want to have that level of conscious evolution, because there's a story that we tell ourselves that, oh, I, you know, and I, I've been a student of Soto Zen for about 20 years. So we often have these stories of kind of the enlightened being and kind of enlightenment. And that's great. And that's a, you know, a wonderful thing to kind of, I don't know, strive for in a certain sense. But then it all, it just becomes about your individual self. And you can, you know, you can hit Satori and then you come back down and you help enlighten others. That's part of the mythos structure of kind of Judeo-Christianism. I make an argument that, that, that it's fine, but we should think of ourselves less in a hundred yard race and more as being part of a very long marathon where we're just holding the baton for the next generation, the next generation. So if we do our work on ourselves and we do the right work, at, it could be a vibrationary level, however you want to define it. What that does is it tees up the next generation to start off that much higher on the ladder 
towards a level uh, of enlightenment and a way of being that is closer to that, that way of flourishing that I've kind of defined than as opposed to if we just thought about it oh, only for our own life. So yeah, that telos is that deeper vision that, that transcends us as an individual and collects us to a much deeper time frame. Well, and you say how you care for this moment matters. It matters today, tomorrow, and a thousand years from now. 100%. How you say goodbye to your kids in the morning, how you say hello to them, how you treat your partner, your colleagues, the person who checks your security badge at the building, the, the worker, whoever, those things don't just matter in the moment, but if we're, those things matter because how you interact with them changes them and how they interact with others. And all of a sudden you got to start to see at scale what that looks like. You know, we talk all the time about viral media. Oh, that video just went viral, right? People will say, I'm saying, what does it mean to step back and say, well, what does it mean for like an emotion to go viral, right? Like compassion or empathy or awe or hope. And if you're if you're embedding that in your everyday kind of smaller interactions with other people and with yourself, that could go viral, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, like what if we spend as much time kind of thinking about how we do that? Because then again, that starts to kind of change the soil from which we build solutions that we need to kind of build towards better tomorrows. So you address my favorite topic in your book, which is mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. Um, and you say, you know, you have to acknowledge death to live in alignment. Yep. Can you talk with me about how you see that as important and relevant? Like, how do you think about death and how do you use death as a lens in your life? Yeah, well, so as, as, I'm, as you know, um, I, or not, and you're probably better studied on this than I am, you know, I look to Ernest Becker, it's kind of denial of death as a kind of pillar in how I think about long path. Because what happens more often than not is, we live in a very death anxious culture as opposed to a death aware. And so when you're death anxious, it becomes very, very difficult to think about anything that even touches upon, upon your own individual death. What I say in the book is like it's very difficult for a society to think about the future, the far futures, if they are so death anxious. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can't think about not being here. So that's not very far. So you think out 30, 50, 60 years, maybe, but you don't think about how you're going to build these bigger futures. And so we find in cultures, I, I focus in, on Japan, but in many Eastern cultures that are more death aware, that they have a respect for elders and they understand the cycles of life and death and that overlap, they tend, about, they tend to think and plan for the future much better because they're not stuck with this lifespan bias of, well, there's nothing after me. How can I imagine and build for anything after me? That's obviously biological death, but we see this with politicians, right? It's very difficult to get them to implement policies and laws and ways of doing things that will transcend their own time in office, their own life in office. But by the way, it's not just their fault. It's also us. We want things immediately. We want our politicians to quickly pass laws that will make us feel good and kind of give us the bread and circus tomorrow and not plant trees whose shade we will never know, right? The book opens up with this quote from the Talmud, Honey, he comes upon this older man and this man's you know, planting a small little carob tree. And Honey says, well, why are you planting that tree? Like how long will it be until it you know, has shade and fruit? And he goes, oh, it'll be 30 or 40 years. He goes, but you're so old. Why are you doing that? You won't be around. And he goes, because when I was young, I played in the shade of a carob tree. I ate carob fruit. Somebody planted it for me. That's death aware. 
right? That's understanding mm-hmm. that you have to do things that transcend yourself. And we are in such a kind of youth-obsessed anti-death culture. We are so scared of it that it's very difficult for us to plan and think for those far futures. So I put that in the book. And it's interesting, a lot of people, you know, readers, people who are emailing me or when I, when I give talks, I say, you know, I never realized that the fear of my own death, the, the re- issues that I have with my own mortality are keeping me from actions that help build bitter, you know, bigger and better futures for generations this, to come. This is what I say is at the core of everything. Yes. Is people's unconscious and Irving Yalom talks about this yes. in his work all the time, right? If you, he talks about it in the course of treatment. If you never address death in treatment, it isn't actually a real treatment because that's at the core of so many of our neuroses. I mean, this is what Ernest Becker says. All, almost all of culture and society and the fictions that we create are all our way of dealing with our own impermanence. And the and you know, we're probably the, probably the only, as far as we know, only species at a very young age becomes aware of our own mortality, and there becomes crushing, right? Because we can't imagine being in a, not no longer being part of this reality. And so, you know, there there's exercises. I won't give it away, but there's some extras in the book that help kind of people start to look at that. But but moving in to becoming a society that is more, more death aware and isn't, you know, taking our senior citizens and warehousing them. I'm not saying everybody's mother or father can live with them. Sometimes there's medical need beyond that, and there's all sorts of traumas, and you don't you don't need that. I was talking to a TV executive the other day, and he goes, "Well, the only demographic that matters is 24 to 54." We don't want them too young and we don't want them older than 54 because they don't matter anymore. That's that's what we focus when we make TV shows is 24 to 54. And and, the, I, and I never and I'd heard that before, but I never kind of stopped to think about like, what does that mean? A society that is so focused on kind of being present. And I don't mean good Buddhist present. I mean, kind of a present bias that only this bracket of age matters. And so what that ends up doing that just biases us towards only living in the moment and and sometimes, like, I'm all for living in the moment and being very, very present. That's, mm-hmm. you know, the heart of my mindfulness practice. At the same time, though, we have to step back and plant those carob trees whose shade we'll never know. But if we're so obsessed with avoiding death and even talking about death, that it makes sense that it's very difficult as a society for us to plan and think about these bigger futures that go beyond our own life. It's just, it's just it, I would say death anxiety is probably one of the biggest intellectual emotional roadblocks for individuals or even a society writ large um in terms of them thinking about kind of the far futures mm-hmm. i could not agree more yep. it's it's my mission in life is to help people yeah and look i look i i you know my father passed away when i was 18 which is younger than for most folks so i i had to deal with this like i had to think you know like because one of the first things that came up after he passed away was bizarrely or not, I was like, oh, like I'm next in line, but I was only 18 years old. Right. Right. And usually you don't have those thoughts until you're like your fifties <laughs> or sixties and you have kids. And so all of a sudden it made my life very different. I realized there was no one kind of, at least at the father level, my mother was, was still alive for many, many years. And so, and because of my faith and the way we've kind of practiced Judaism, being aware of that and having sitting Shiva and being more focused on, you know, the, the Kaddish, the prayer that we say for someone who has passed never mentions death. It's always about life and how we should live and live a good life and live in in a way that shows that those who we are mourning, we're taking the best of how they live and and bringing it into our life. Very, you know, very long path. So those are the ways Mm -hmm. to your question, how do I integrate it? That's how I integrated it was kind of seeing this 
is a way of being one that is focused on life, but not just on myself. Th th those are to come. You know, mm -hmm. we were saying Judaism, the door of a door, generation to generation. That's, I think, what has sustained at least the Jewish people for, for many, many generations is recognizing that it's not just about us, but about the world to come. Not necessarily in a messianic way, but in thinking about how do we kind of lay down infrastructure? It could be building a synagogue, but I actually think it's about policies and laws and ways of being that make the world a better place. That That's the argument and the exercises in the book are to help folks get there. Well, and I'm actually just thinking, I was just at my friend's son's bar mitzvah this weekend. Mm -hmm. And one mm -hmm. of the things we do, as you know, is you pass the Torah down. And it's, I could almost cry even talking about it now because it's a very emotional moment, but it is so um, concrete in yep. the way that you watch if there are grandparents yep. there giving it to their children who then pass it to their children, yep. who will then one day pass it to their children who are not, or, you know, if they choose to have children who are not yep. there. And it's a very um, realistic way of seeing yeah. how things go get passed from generation to generation and so and so the torah in this is that baton right it's like the teachings we're passing it down i would say secular not just jewish focused way long path is my attempt to kind of bring that up to a larger or a different audience i mean mm -hmm. i i just heard it anecdotally just like i just heard from you that long path was mentioned in a dozen plus different sermons over rosh hashanah and yom kippur I, I asked my rabbi, I was like, yeah. do you do you get a list of like, here are the topics? Because it seems like that was one regret I heard a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. I do watch other sermons other than my uh, own yeah. rabbis. It's um, and so look, because I think I think we're in this moment where we're, you know, especially coming out of COVID, where, look, death has never been more present in the American psyche than it has been over the past couple of years. I mean, literally we had mortality numbers on the front page of the newspaper, right? Didn't necessarily mean we led to better action, but, but for the first <laughs> right. time, I was- Just saying, more fear, just more fear. Well, more fear and more awareness. And I was talking to a, a local contractor. He's like, we can't stop redoing kitchens because like everyone's like, this is not the kitchen I'm going to die in. It's like, we're literally at this moment where everyone's like, is this it? Because everyone feels they came, people, we had a mass trauma, mass near-death experience for those first several months of COVID. If you think back, at, mm -hmm. you know, before vaccines, when we were wiping down bananas, if you will, you know. And so I think the reason Long Path is kind of connecting with a lot of folks right now is because they're like, okay, so what? So then now, what is the bigger picture? Like, what mm -hmm. to what end is this whole thing? And some people do that through kind of religious institutions, and some will do it in different ways. And this book is kind of one of many kind of offerings and attempts to help people kind of understand the moment we're in and what are the actions they can take to provide more meaning and purpose to their life that is in a way bigger than just their own life. I could talk to you for hours for sure. Uh, how do we know what the right, what are the right questions we should be asking ourselves to be on the long path? I ask people to consider their obituary, right? And, you know, the, the first paragraph of your obituary is like Ari Wallach lived from this year to that. You know, the second paragraph is who I'm leaving behind, right? Uh, you know, it's family. If you're lucky enough to get two paragraphs, I feel like if, most if people you're lucky, get like one little. Well, you may go, it depends on the obituary or it may just be the way people, the email that'll go out or whatever, right? And so, so it's really about the third paragraph. Like, to, like, what was this person's purpose? What did they do? What was important to them? And so. A way of thinking like, am, am I on the long path right now is, and you, 
you obviously you can be a very large third paragraph. But what I asked, I'm, I mean, with some CEOs later, and, and I'm going to ask them this question is what you're working on right now. Does this make the third paragraph? And, you know, most people are like, well, I run a fortune 100 company. It's, but that's not, that's not what's going to make it. What's going to make it is my charity worker. There's like a, okay. Well, how do we take where you're spending 80% of your time and get it into the third paragraph? That's the difference. If you're running a major corporation or a restaurant or a school or a family or your own life, if, it, if you can't get it to be in the third paragraph, you should rethink how you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And so if you can do it in a way that you think will contribute to this larger flourishing future for our society or civilization or homo sapiens, because I think that's what makes it into the third paragraph, mm -hmm. then you know you're doing the work right? At one level, that's the external. At the internal, that third paragraph is one that you will have on your deathbed that won't be read out loud. Did I make myself a better person so that that betterness, that more um, human way of being was viral in nature in a positive sense and actually impacted people around me so that they were living better and happier, more fulfilled lives. So that's the that's a question only an individual can ask for themselves day in and day out. Outwardly, does it make your third paragraph? And internally to yourself, are you being a better and the best human you can possibly be? But people can only answer that against their own internal metric and yardstick. Well, Ari, this was awesome today. Thank you. Thank you. I know we there was more I even wanted to cover, but sure, next time, next book. <laughs> we'll do sure. it. Exactly. I'll I'll get you the next time around. Yeah. If people are interested, tell me, tell us where they can find your work. Longpath.org. You can sign up for the newsletter, all sorts of that. You can find the book, shop local. Most bookstores have it. Bookstores at airports have. And if not, you can go online. But at longpath.org. There's links to all of that. Read the book and then tell me what you think. You folks can email me. You can find it on the on the page. Um, and it and also obviously on Instagram and those other things. But more than anything, just look, read the book. And if you can't, if you don't want to buy the book, um, think about next time you're having a conversation with anyone. If I'm a trim tab, how am I impacting at a vibration level or whatever level you want to call it? those people around me? Is it for the better towards a bigger picture? Just ask yourself that very simple question. Or go to your library. Or go to your library. Sorry, you 100% go to your library. Ari, thank you so much. The book is Long Path. It is fantastic. It's super readable. I'm working on a book now and I'm always like, how do people make it so readable? It feels like I'm like logging through. So no, I tried to make it you that. for yeah, that. Thank you. <laughs> and um, buy it, get it at your library, borrow it. I've got a copy. It's underlined and everything, but Great. anyone can borrow mine. Awesome. Um, thank you, Ari, so much for your time Thanks today. for having me. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.